when you're being admitted to a psychiatric hospital, everyone with you is having the worst day of their life because they're being, they're either being admitted or they're admitting someone they love. Hi everyone, I'm Nikki Brigger and welcome to the latest edition of Finding Fearless with Murray Claire. Our series is all about telling the brave stories of women who've faced hardship and overcome the odds to find their purpose. Now, Georgie Dent is a familiar name for most of our readers at Murray Claire. As a journalist and editor, she's written passionately for our mag and website on huge amounts of topics, including gender equality and women's rights. But she saved her biggest story for her new book, Breaking Badly, How I Worried Myself Sick. In it, she tells how her seemingly perfect life, a dream job at a Sydney law firm, a loving relationship, a fabulous family who supported her, completely unravelled at the age of 25 and left her broken, unemployed and living back with her parents. Suffering from crippling anxiety and chronic health problems, the only way out was to face facts, find her fearless and book herself into a psychiatric hospital. Her story of recovery is incredible and an inspiration to us all. Now today, we also have a special guest host for the episode, Murray Claire Deputy Editor Mel Gordron, who read her book cover to cover in one setting. She loved it so much that she just had to do the interview. So over to Mel and Georgie. So I just want to go back to um, when you were a teenager, basically. So in your early teens and 20s, while completing a law degree and starting a new career as a lawyer, you started experiencing a number of health problems that no one could really fix. What was life like for you in this period? In my late teens, that was when I really did start to experience um, really physical symptoms of illness and most of them were centred around my abdomen. I just had horrendous pain all the time and a lot of discomfort. It wasn't very pleasant. But also because I was young, and I mean maybe it's not just being young, but I wasn't really comfortable talking about my health with with lots of people. It wasn't really something that I wanted to, to discuss. But And I think particularly being 19 and 20 when you sort of – I was out of school and I was at uni and what I saw most of my friends doing was not struggling with health problems. And so sure. you had other problems that eventually became um, diagnosed as Crohn's disease. Can you explain what that actually is? Yeah, sure. So Crohn's disease is an autoimmune condition and it is basic, it's an inflammatory bowel condition. Mm-hmm. So it's every bit as vile as that sounds. Um, <laughs> the way I would describe my Crohn's was like barley belly, but I yep. hadn't been to Bali for the nice yeah. holiday. Yeah. And Good it lasted for years. And so I was forever, I had no... Um, confidence or trust in my digestive system. So I was forever needing to race to the bathroom. Yeah. And the problem with that sort of condition is then even when you actually might not physically need the bathroom, I was constantly aware of the fact that at any moment the symptoms might come on and then I would need a bathroom. So when I started working in a big law firm, this became really problematic because at uni, obviously, you're coming and going a lot. So if I had a horrendous episode with my stomach, I could sneak out of a lecture and, you know, there wouldn't be great repercussions of that. Suddenly I was working in a full-time job in an office where the hours were really long and I was visible the whole time. I mean, people probably weren't looking at me as much as I thought they were, but if I was in a meeting, every time I was in a meeting, I was constantly thinking, oh, dear God, what is going to happen if I need to go to the bathroom? And then sometimes I would go to the bathroom and then I'm like, now I can't go again because sometimes, you know, you'd be in a meeting for four hours 
Completely. And, and then, so then having this fear on top of that, yeah. you can just imagine how that exacerbated the cycle. And not only that, and the toll that would place, your mental health would just be Well, I know, and it's, it's funny because once I got really sick and then got better, I realised then if I had a couple of days where I didn't feel well, I, the toll that took was enormous. And I couldn't yeah. believe that there had been I had been able to function for so many years with this compromised level of health, not actually really aware of of what it was taking from me every day. Correct, because then you just get you just you adjust. just, you just yeah. adjust, and so mm. my normal was not being well. Yeah, and um, I was really unwell, and I was sort of unaware actually of just how poor my health was, physical and sure. mental. Sure. And also, I think another thing that happens in that, when you're on that cycle, is you go and visit doctor after doctor after doctor. And another thing that I think happens is you just get to see the shocking bedside manner of some doctors. And that, that honestly, your your stories like just left my jaw on the floor. Just can you recall some of yes. the more memorable moments? Yes, I certainly. I mean, I like to call myself a frequent flyer in the <laughs> in the medical and health um, system, and I had a couple of interactions early with doctors that really set me on a difficult path. So when I was 19 um, and I was diagnosed with endometriosis, so finally I went to the GP. The GP said, I think you need to see a gynaecologist. So I went off to a gynaecologist. He did an internal ultrasound and said, I can see all this endometriosis is there. It's basically tissue growing in the wrong place. We'll do three surgeries in the next five weeks to remove it. And I found it... Sounds extreme. It does sound extreme. And later, a couple of years later, when I saw another gynecologist and I'd moved to Sydney and needed to have surgery again, and I told him what had happened, he just he said to me, "Look, that's just barbaric. You would not operate yeah. on a nineteen-year-old girl three times in five weeks. Like you just do it once." Yeah, I was I was pretty shattered by it because it all seemed pretty terrifying to me, and I wasn't yeah. that thrilled about having these operations. But I went through them, and I had to do these foul preps that you, anyone who's ever had certain procedures will be familiar with. They're awful, Correct. but yeah. you're basically not eating for, for two days before the procedure, you have it, you then have a general anaesthetic, they then cut inside you, you're then in a lot of pain. Yeah. So I had that three times in five weeks. I was in pretty bad shape. Yeah. And at the follow-up appointment, which my mum came along to, the doctor said to me, look, Georgie, I think if we're honest here, you don't look like you'd you know, last around in a boxing ring. <laughs> And I really genuinely for a moment thought he had mistaken me for a patient he had that was a boxer because why Why would I want to? Exactly. I would never want to be in a boxing ring, let alone survive. I just wouldn't. But I sort of looked at him blankly and he looked at me and he said, well, look, what I'm saying is a lot of people bounce better than you do. Oh. And after that appointment, that oh. was my mum's reaction. Okay, she was furious at him for saying that. We left and she'd been she'd come up to Brisbane to, to sort of help me through all these procedures and she was absolutely furious that he said that. And I said to her, Mum, he is the doctor. He sees people who do this. If he says I'm not good at recovering, obviously I'm not good at recovering. Oh, for God's sake. Exactly. You can imagine how frustrating that was for my mum. But that was the sort of headspace that I was in generally, that I was willing to accept anything as a catastrophic personal failing of mine. <laughs> but I also, I really did take on board that I wasn't a good patient. And then a couple of years later when I'd moved to Sydney and I was starting to see a new gastroenterologist in Sydney, he said to me at one appointment, look, you are what we call a heart sink patient. A what? A heart sink? A heart sink patient. Mm-hmm. So a doctor sees your name on the list and their heart sinks. <sighs> and Just what you want to hear. I know. And Just as a sort of pathological people pleaser, this is very <laughs> difficult for me because I want people to like me. Yeah. I really want 
I don't know why I want these doctors to like me, but I, you know, I took that on board again as me being somehow I'm not doing the wrong, the right thing. Yeah. It's funny that I didn't think, and the reason that he thought I was a heart sick patient was because I didn't respond to the various treatments and medications the way he wanted me to. So why didn't you think, well, he was a crap doctor? Exactly. That's what's funny. Or why didn't I think, well, maybe the drugs are wrong. Uh, but I immediately thought, oh, well, if he uh, says I'm a heart yeah. sinker, I'm obviously. My, Another failure. My, um, boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, who was a very junior medical student at the time, was with me for that appointment. All right. And he was gobsmacked. He was like, I'm in fourth year medicine and it is clear you don't say that to the patient, <laughs> even Correct. if you don't, even if they are difficult, you don't say that to them. So I've certainly seen a lot of terrible examples of like bedside manner at its absolute worst. Yeah. And, and I think that what that ends up doing is that then you try to um, put on a face, you mm. know, you, you kind of end up coming up with your own story of like, oh, no, I'm not going to go to another doctor and for them to tell me what a failure I am. So I was going to go, no, everything, everything's fine. Yeah. Everything's and fine. I, I definitely did. And I, I definitely did downplay certain things at certain times because I was like, I don't want to tell them that yeah. it's not working. So I'm just going to say it's okay. Because they're going to be judgy. They're going to yeah. sit in judgment on your, you know, or that's, yes. I, can, I can totally understand how you would have taken that on board and then gone with that kind of persona. It, it makes sense. Yes. But, but either way, so despite all of the, all of these visits to doctors and everything, um, you really ended up, as a lot of people do with chronic health issues, end up like with with, with some mental health issues mm. and basically you started unravelling. You ended up at your mum and dad's mm. at 25 mm. on the couch, mm. unhinged mm. and really wondering if you were ever going to get better. Like I, I remember in your book, your self-talk at that time was just horrendous. I'm going to read out some quotes. What the hell is wrong with you? How many sick days can one person take? Why can't you just suck it up like everybody else? Are you really so help, so hopeless that you can't handle working? And then even when you were at your parents and you were supposed to be, you know, relaxing, then you were saying things like, um, you couldn't nap. Why are you trying to sleep in the middle of the day? How lazy can you be? You should be reading. And then you try and read and you go, why are you reading a book when you should be at work? You aren't supposed to enjoy yourself. You're supposed to just stop stressing. Why are you reading? You should just rest. Like, do you, do you look back on that and go, oh, my God. I yeah, was... I do. And the funny thing is that when I did completely unravel, for a period of time I was completely sort of blown away by this. I was like, how could I possibly unravel? And then as soon as I unraveled and started to unpick what had happened, it's like, how the hell did I not unravel about 10 years before I did? Because there was some really unhelpful things happening in my head. And I was incredibly hard on myself um, about so many things. Um, But particularly for me, the health stuff, I just, I, I really did, I had internalised my illnesses as yeah. being weaknesses and so I really did struggle. Whenever I had a reason that I wasn't actually able to be in the office, I, the pressure that put on me was horrendous. That's actually what I worried about more than the, yeah. than, oh, okay, you're actually going to go and have a general anaesthetic and a three-hour operation. Yeah. And I was more concerned with letting the office down Yeah. or, or, or letting on that somehow I was a malingerer or something that I was getting all this time off and no one else needed it, which is so unfair and uh, unkind because I was dealing with legitimate chronic health conditions and I was just doing what I had to do. Um, But I reckon 
but it's the story of everyone. Like, mm. like that, that, that feeling of, oh, no, I need to toughen up. I need to be tougher. I, I'm a failing. I, like, you know, I cried at work, so therefore, oh, my God, I'm just such a loser. You know, like, you can hit the self-talk that is especially in women's heads, but undoubtedly in men's as well. It's just... You know, you say that enough to yourself, then you become you become what you what you think. You mm. become that self talk. So it's not at all surprising that you ended up on your mum's couch at twenty five, going, "Oh my god!" You know. Yeah. And I know that there was, um, you know, you'd gone through a whole heap of doctors there, and I think finally your mum, bless her, mm. the perpetual carer in this in this particular story. Um, she, I think, came uh, came across like a little a little retire or a GP on the verge of retirement or something like that. Was that well? Right? He, yeah, he was actually a general physician who he he was in his he was in his early seventies. He actually is still working. Oh, bless um, him. I went to that appointment with absolutely no expectations of anything helpful because I'd been to so many appointments where no one had helped. Yeah, we sat down and he. He looked at me straight in the eyes and he just said, Georgie, I am so sorry for what you're going through. This is awful. And it was the first time that a doctor had shown me total compassion and understanding. And I nearly cried the minute (laughs) he said that because I just was like, yes, this is awful. This is so awful. So often when I'd gone into those appointments, I was in that zone of feeling like here I am, the troublemaker, the person who no one can fix. And he was actually saying to me, do you know what? This is horrible. I'm so sorry you're going through this. Yeah. And he said, look, I've looked through, and he had all of my notes in front of him, all the reports I'd had from CT scans and MRIs and all the specialist reports. And he said, look, in my medical career, nearly 50 years treating patients, every single time someone presents with unexplained physical symptoms, it is always stress. Yeah. And he said, I'm not saying it's in your head because it's not, it's real, but we have to look at stress as a factor. And I, I, I felt I, I, it was a light bulb moment and I was like, he's right. This yeah. is No one has been able to tell me what's going wrong with my body and he has just told me and I believe him. Yeah. And, and what did he suggest? Well, he said to me, I think you need to see a psychiatrist tomorrow and I think that probably you should look at spending some time in a facility um, for rehab. And, you know, that was a pretty daunting thing to be told. Yeah. But at the same time, what I actually felt when he said that was relief. Yeah. Because it was a solution, a potential solution. And I, had, I hadn't, you know, for those four months, but also for the sort of three, four, five years before that, I'd never gone, I had really lost hope that anyone was ever going to be able to help me feel better Yeah. Um, in a really meaningful sense. But, you know, I left that appointment and I just thought, he's right. And I was in a bad place at that time. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it, when someone's saying you need to go to a psych facility and you're actually weirdly I know. internally going, yes, <laughs> Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I know. And that was the thing for me that I was like, I I really need this place because if I am sitting here feeling relief at the prospect of being admitted. And I don't think it was ever on your bucket list. (laughs) No. And look, as I've said to a few people, uh, certainly wasn't on my bucket list. And also, so when I asked mum and dad and driving one of the adult children to rehab wasn't on their bucket list either. It wasn't sort of like the parenting goal they were hoping to tick off. And that was quite the experience, um, I can tell you. Uh, But So how how was it when you got, so you you rocked up? 
to yeah, you. turned up, and that was hard. It was mm. even though I knew it was what I needed, it was still very the drive up there. I felt terrified. I, I just kept I kept having to get Dad to pull over because I was dry retching. I just felt sick to my core yeah. with fear. Um, and then, you know, when I got there, it was also fairly confronting and overwhelming. You know, when you're being admitted to a psychiatric hospital, yeah. everyone with you is having the worst day of their life because they're being, <laughs> yes. they're either being admitted or they're admitting someone they love yeah. into this facility. So the hospital was divided into two wings mm-hmm. and they, so they admit people for mood disorders yeah. um, and so that was me and then for drug and alcohol um, addiction. And so even though... We technically were in separate wings of, you know, our rooms were in separate areas. We shared all of the other facilities and, and that we would be at in sessions with. There was a real cross-section of ages and conditions, mm-hmm. I suppose. I was certainly, I think I was the youngest in the mood disorder wing. There were younger, there were more younger people in the drug and alcohol wing. Um, but... You know, there wasn't a lot of rhyme or reason. It would, if you mm. looked at the people, mm. or if you looked at all of us that were gathered over a time, there were certainly some people who you might see that you could tell that they were in a physically or a, you know in a in a bad place. But there were also lots of people that, if you saw them on the street, you might not think. Yeah, I know that. Um, on one of the first days you were there, you started seeing a psychologist, and in the first session, they said, "How would you define a human being?" value or worth? Can you remember what you answered? Um, I actually can't specifically remember what I answered there. You actually said, when everything works. Mm. So, and you obviously, you didn't think you worked. You thought you were broken. So therefore, you kind of thought you had no value or worth. Was that, did you always think that? Or was that a bit of a penny drop? Um. It, it, there were a lot of penny drop moments yeah. when I was when I was in that hospital, um, but that theme was a big one for me. That I had really um, internalised that idea that because my body didn't work, I was flawed and yeah. therefore not very valuable um, as a human being. Like I was, it, you're either everything works, therefore you're valuable, or something doesn't work, therefore you are worthless and there's nothing to you. And that was the sort of headspace I occupied for a long time um, and it was really problematic because I was unwell and so it meant for a long time my starting point had been that I wasn't very valuable, um, which is really horrible yeah. to and, think about. And, and But also, again, it's the story of... So <laughs> yeah. It's the story of the modern human being, isn't it? Yeah. And, but what I found really interesting was that I think you were surprised by the fact that you could play a role in changing that thinking in your head. Like I think mm. you had you had um, therapy with a psych and and you realised, you know, God, how, how did I not know that I could actually change my story, that you had some – you could – um, like apply some techniques to to change your journey. Yes, and I mean, like that was the most liberating. Really. So the idea that I could influence the way I thought, and therefore that might influence the way I felt, mm. that was hu- amazingly liberating for me because it gave me hope that maybe I could. I had been feeling for a while that surely one day this is all going to get easier. Yeah. You know, I through school yeah. and uni, I was really driven and determined to get good marks and do well. 
And then once I finished uni, I sort of thought, right, well, when I start in the workplace, obviously all of that stuff will go and I'll just be able to get on with living my life. Surprise, I turned up to work and I still felt exactly the same pressure. And when I was in rehab, I suddenly discovered that through a variety of different techniques, I could actually change that cycle. And I was able to, you know, step away and think, wow, I have been making every single day harder than it needed to be. Because before I wake up in the morning, I'm already doubting myself. I'm already feeling guilty for for different things. Why do you think that, um, like, that particularly women might feel in that instance that they're, you know, is it because they're they're under the microscope or they're... Well, I think... Or is it just a failing? I think one... One sort of valid explanation is this idea that because women are supposed to be the nurturers, like we're supposed to Mm -hmm. help other people, us needing help flips that a little bit. Yeah. And, I mean, this is all very deep subconscious. It's not sort of anyone who's saying to me, excuse me, Georgie, you're meant to bear children, so can you please not be sick? Yeah. But I think it's that we absorb that sort of message that as women we're meant to care for other people, we're meant to make other people's lives easier, we're, you know, running around helping, making sure everything works. And then when we're not in a position to be able to do that, it really challenges that assumption. And I think that's something that, well, a lot of women I've spoken to who can relate to my feelings about chronic illness have sort of said that dynamic gets to them, that they feel like they're not fulfilling their natural role when they're the person that's difficult. But as I had to sort of come to accept, you know, that whole thing about forgetting the black or white, looking for the fact that in reality it's going to be, there will be days where I'm unwell and I might not be able to care for other people. There'll also be days where I will be feeling better and I will be able to do all the various things I need to do um, without that being sort of like one or the other doesn't, they're not completely discounting each other. That's just the way it is. But it's also, well, that's just the frailty of the human condition, isn't it? That on any day, regardless of whether you're well or, you know, or sick, um, you know, there'll be days where you feel like crap and there'll be days where, you you know, you jump out of bed and, 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 but the judgment that we put on ourselves for, for, for feeling like you're somehow not measuring up to some imaginary yardstick yeah. Yeah. is um, is then what impacts mm. on such a massive way. Yeah. And um, and that, that's what I think even from your book that um, like that resonates so much with, with women that they think that they're just not, they're not enough. They're not yeah. they're never enough. And if anything then goes wrong in their life, that's further proof that they're not enough, you yeah. know? So after I had my breakdown and sort of rebuilt, my Crohn's symptoms basically disappeared, which was a wonderful, wonderful, unexpected side effect, which was amazing. And I have never, touch wood, my Crohn's (laughs) tummy symptoms have never returned. But after I had our second baby, I developed major um, rheumatoid arthritis in the right side of my spine. And we didn't know that was Crohn's disease for a long time. I'd had a fall, so we sort of thought it was an injury and that's why I had this pain. But anyway, it turned out that it's been rheumatoid arthritis. And so I have had – I am still very familiar with – it is chronic pain and a chronic health condition and it ebbs and flows. But when I was having a particularly difficult time a couple of years ago, I went and saw a psychologist because I had, I just was really struggling. It was, we've got, we had three little kids at the time. I was physically not able to uh, do all of the things I wanted to do. Yeah. And so of course I was thinking, well, you know what, I'm a terrible mother, obviously, and I'm not as good a wife as I could be, all these things. Yeah. And when I spoke to the psychologist, she sort of said to me, look, 
And this was an acute phase. I was in a lot of pain. I was having a number of injections. For sure. And she just sort of said to me, you know what, it's just important to step back. You don't need to assess your quality as a mother, as a wife, as a human being, as a writer every single day. Yeah. Like just really live each day, just do the best that you can and save the sort of big scale evaluation of your whole life for not the time when you are completely under the pump physically. Like it's just not that. And I think that's really important because I think when things are difficult, that's when it's really easy to sort of get yourself into knots about how bad you are Mm. at different things when actually that's not the time to be making really harsh judgment calls on yourself. It's so true. And I think it's so that um, the the mind state of um, of mothers, mm. of mother, like mm. they just bash themselves up for being the worst. It's like your kid, if you like normal good parenting means that some days you'll lose it yes. and then other days you'll be fine and your kid will not, they, 100% will yeah. not, you know, yeah. um, end up in the gutter somewhere, no. you know, because of your bad parenting on that one day. But yeah. what we do to ourselves over that. Yes, and I think you're right because I think sometimes what we construe as bad parenting is often just humanity. Like we yes. have limits. And, I mean, you know, I've got my youngest is three and a half at the moment and three-and-a-half-year-olds are absolutely <laughs> adorable, but they are mental. Yes. And... You know, it's amazing that something so small, a little person, a little package of a human who's so small can press so many buttons, but they do. And it's important to recognise that if I flip out and just think, oh, for God's sake, if you ask me for an eighth book tonight, (laughs) but it's like, that's just, I'm a human being. Show me any person who wouldn't under these, this sort of pressure. The thing about kids and family life is that it is messy and there are bad days. Like your kids are going to have terrible days at school. You're going to have fights with your husband or your, you know, whoever your partner is. All of that stuff happens and if you, I think, if you apply too much pressure and just think, oh, well, any any sign of anything messy means we're doing a bad job, oh my God. you're setting yourself up for failure because oh, there's massive. going to be, you know, there is mess. Anyway, that was a little aside, getting back to your, <laughs> getting back to your book. I also thought that it was interesting that um, you'd never actually contemplated the whole idea of um, that your anxiety was really also feeding also feeding into this, um, you're thinking about yourself. That um, I know another occasion, a, um, a psychologist asked you if you would make your life better. What's the one thing that you would change? And you said you would eliminate fear, um, which I was really struck by because on paper you go, this is a girl who finished six years of a degree, was living her big best Oprah life, was had the big <laughs> had the big career job in the city, had the beautiful relationship, had the loving family. So on paper, um, you had nothing to be scared of because it looked like for, for all of those things, so many other people could not have been able to achieve that because mm. they, you know, would have had their own fears. But it looked like no matter what you took on, you did well and you achieved, you, you had mm. great friendships, you, you know, all of that. And yet you said you were basically scared the entire time. I was scared every day about everything. Like, like, like what? I would, I would just, my state of mind was I would wake up in the morning and it didn't matter what time the alarm went off or what was happening that day. I, I would wake up with a jolt of thinking, oh, God, okay, 
right, um, and then I would sort of contemplate, right, will I be late to work? Will I miss this train? Will I be bad? And Like, will I say the wrong thing? Will I get the advice wrong? Am I, you know, mm, yeah. I, I just was, I was literally scared of everything all the time. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting, and actually one of my best friends said this to me the other day, we were having a discussion about the book and she obviously, she, we were at school together and so she's known me for a very long time and she obviously, you know, it was always clear from school I was a stress head. I, I was always yeah. stressed and, you know, that was annoying probably for my friends. But we were talking about the fact that when we were at school, mental health wasn't the sort of thing that it is now. Like depression yep. and anxiety weren't, they certainly weren't in our realm you know, it's different, I think, now for for kids. You know, I mean, I know high schools and, and even primary schools to an extent. It, there are issues that they talk about. But I, it wasn't something – I knew that I was sort of an anxious – I had an anxious mind, and I, but I didn't really compute that as being a condition. I just mm. thought that was my frame of mind. Yeah. And I think that was a pretty fundamental reason that I didn't – probably seek help earlier or recognize that I needed help earlier was because I just thought well this that is the way I are. am I'm yep. just a bit of a worrier and I worry about things and I didn't think that that was like a medical condition that anybody could help me with but do you think that anybody knows what the difference is between I'm just a worrier versus this is a mental condition yeah well I think I mean probably if you asked smart psychologists they could answer <laughs> this better than me but I think for me, even now, I know I am predisposed to worry about things. I'm, mm. I'm more of a natural worrier. And I think there's a level of sort of worrying that's perfectly fine if it yeah. helps you get things done. But I think when it starts to manifest itself in physical condition, a physical mm. symptoms. So I used to race around constantly with adrenaline running. Like, you know, and yeah. I had that flight or fight response all the time, like, and I'm not, I'm not joking. Part of it, I think, was triggered by my physical health because, as I said at the beginning, when I was having those, the, when I had my horrendous stomach, I was constantly on on alert for when the next disaster would happen and how I would be able to navigate that. Yeah, and I think that sort of just infiltrated, so that for basically every waking hour, I was I was on alert for something going wrong. Yeah, and I had that, you know, my heart raced all the time. I sort of had clammy palms. Yeah. So I was in a physical state of heightened stress all the time. Yeah. And that is obviously anxiety. So for me, obviously, it was a mental illness and medication helped enormously. I was you were, very you were reluctant. You on um, med- medication um, at the psych facility, yeah? Yeah. And were you reluctant to do that initially? Well, I wasn't. I mean, I didn't ever think about not taking it. Yeah. But I did have a conversation with the psychiatrist where I was like, I mean, obviously... And I love how optimistic I was despite the fact I have absolutely no scientific qualifications <laughs> at all. But I was like, well, obviously there's no tablet that can change how a person feels. He was like, mm, very interesting, there is, and <laughs> you're going to try it. And because I really did, I mean, I, I still don't actually understand the science behind it, but he said to me it acts as a circuit breaker. Once you're in a certain state, you're not capable of sort of recalibrating. Right. This medication will help you recalibrate. Yeah. And it we you know within a, within a couple of weeks of being on that medication I did feel a lot better and I've stayed on it. I've yeah. never gone off because every single doctor that I've seen in the time since has just said it's worked and why would we I'm on a it's a safe medication I'm on a low dose. Yeah. It helps me. Why would we rock the boat? And for me it's it's um I haven't ever had another sort of significant mental health issue. I have struggled, as I said before, like with my physical health, 
anxiety is still something I'm conscious of and that I have to manage in different ways and I'll turn back to techniques, you know, and I will go and see a psychologist again if I'm having a tough time. What are those kind of like? Like I assume that you've now got a few, you know, tools in your tool belt to um, or techniques that you yep. use when you either, when either, you know, anxiety is knocking on your door or like, you know, like that irrationality, fear... Yeah. So one of the big things that I have to do when I am starting to feel a bit physically overwhelmed or like I'm in a state of stress quite often, I have to kind of unpick what's going on. And so I will either have a very open conversation with maybe my mum or maybe my husband and just sort of run through a couple of the things that are on my mind. And usually the process of doing that reveals some of the irrationality or I'll write things down and just sort of like get a list happening of the things that was worrying me and be quite forensic about it. You know, is this actually real, what yeah. you're concerned about? If this happens, what's going to be the worst case scenario? Where's yeah, the sort of evidence to support this? Kind of thing. Try to bring that back mm-hmm. and be really rational about those sorts of things. After I came out of rehab, I saw a psychologist every week for six months in right. Sydney. And then after that, I sort of saw the same woman maybe once a month or maybe once every three months. And then I basically didn't see anyone for a long time because yep. I was in a good place. And then there've been times since where I've gone back for you know, a couple of sessions to workshop some stuff because I find that really helps. I can get a little way on my own with my own little techniques, but I find I get great value from going to see someone and workshopping with them using their guidance to, to get on top of things. Yeah. And I mean, I have to say, and I've done this with the kids, not, not with, not physically with them, but regarding the, children, the yeah. part of parenting, there are parts that I find stressful and I have found there's a couple of great family psychologists that I've been to on different occasions to sort of workshop different, you know, before we had our third baby, I was really, there were a couple of issues around sleep time with our three-year-old and I was like, I don't know how to handle this. And yeah. I ended up going and seeing this family psychologist and, you know, it's almost like super nanny. She just worked, she talked through a program, you know, basically this is how you can this run you should do bedtime, do this. I'm quite practical in that way. Like I like getting someone to tell me what to do because when I've got instructions, I'm quite good at following them. So this is what you're going to do. And so, yeah, I have a couple of different people, I sort of say, in our family arsenal that I will call on their professional help for different issues. So it's been a decade or so on. How's your life now? Yeah, well, so the funny thing is, you know, I had this breakdown when I I was 24 when it started, 25 in the middle of it. And really, I was just a single person. I mean, I did have a boyfriend, but we weren't married. There was no mortgage. There were not children. Yep. I had just one job yep. and I managed to fall apart. And my life now is actually far more stressful yeah. <laughs> in lots of ways than it was back then. But obviously, I've got anxiety treated, which makes life a lot easier. And I've also kind of been able to develop some ways in which I can navigate the stress. But so life is we have, we've got three kids, um, three daughters, nine six and three. Great. And um, I have been working as a journalist for, you know, after I had the meltdown, I left law and I had six months selling clothes at David Jones before then getting a job in journalism, which is what I'd always wanted to do. I do love the fact that part of this journey was you recognising and under- and coming to grips with the fact that what you hadn't, what you'd worked for towards all those years of becoming a lawyer and then you realise, no, it wasn't for you. It's been the gift to us, of course, because now we've got Georgie the journalist. <laughs> and so it's actually, it's worked out, you know, it's worked out not just for you, but for us as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, look, I am so, um, I was very grateful very quickly for the fact that 
my breakdown did cause me to leave that profession not because there's something desperately wrong with that profession but it wasn't for me and I I really didn't want it but that felt terrifying but isn't that interesting that you coming to the realization that it wasn't for you gets caught up in all these other emotions of no I should be grateful I know I should be other people like it I should like it as well like it becomes intertwined in a whole other story that's not even yours and you weirdly measuring up again to something that's in your own head. Yes. I know. I don't know what that is, but I will say that a lot of people... There, obviously there are different touch points in this book that people have responded to and one of yep. them is the career yep. thing yep. Of, of finding yourself in a job or career that actually you've worked really hard for but it's not working for you. And that is something that a lot of people find difficult and I understand it because, you know, it is scary taking a leap and going to the unknown when you've sort of studied a particular thing and you've worked sure. towards that and then you get there and it's like, oh, actually, this isn't yeah. what I want. But then oftentimes, you know, if something's not feeling right, if it's not feeling like it's working, it probably yeah. isn't. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a difference between having a couple of rough, you know, weeks or months at work that's because right. that's always going to yeah. happen and there are going to be more challenging periods than others. But I think if your overwhelming sense is that this isn't, I'm just not in the right place, then it's probably worth listening to that instinct because yeah. in most instances when I've had people tell me their stories, that's been it's been true. If yeah. you genuinely feel like this is wrong, it probably is and there might be something out there that's going to be easier for you. Yeah, um, I completely agree. That is fantastic advice, listening to that little nugget of doubt inside of you. That, yeah. Yeah, because it's actually there for a reason. Yes. Completely. Um, Georgie, this is a brave, brave book. Um, now that you're... Um, I was thinking about this last night because now, of course, you're working, luckily, with us at Murray Claire. And I was thinking how, you know, unreal that you're turning up to an office and, and like, and there's a whole heap of people there who know details about you <laughs> <laughs> at your absolute darkest. And, like, and it, it blows me away that, like, that, that, that you can rock up for real, like, knowing, like knowing that. Like that the, I've shared my yeah. deepest, darkest secret. <laughs> That's right. But, like, do you ever think about that? No. <laughs> oh, no. no I now think, I've landed the no, seed. Yeah, you have. If, you, if I don't come to work next week, you'll That's know. Right. Um, so I think the thing is I sort of told my story gradually. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I initially I pu- had something published on a website that was anonymous yep. and then a couple of years later when I was back in Sydney and I was working, I, I published a piece online with my name on it and then I started doing a bit of public speaking. I, so I had shared my story, in obviously not ways. in this amount of detail, but yep. sort of gradually and I had every time I told the story there were enough people that came to me and said, oh, my goodness, that is me right now or yes. oh, that was me or that's my daughter yep. that made me feel like it was a useful story to tell. Yeah. And so then, yeah, I mean, and then obviously because I've been a writer, a, a publisher approached me a little while, you know, a couple of years ago about writing a book and I just thought if I'm going to write a book, this is the story I yeah. have to write because, you know, obviously I write a lot about women and career and um, gender equality but I didn't have a book in me on those on that subject and yeah. I just thought this is probably the story I have to tell. When I sat down to write, when I had my assigned book time, I just had to write. I didn't have time yeah. to worry. And the publisher and the editor said that at the end when I submitted the manuscript, they were like, the really good thing about this is it doesn't read like you were thinking about what people were going to think. I was like, 
okay, and then that's a bit terrifying because I did just lay my soul bare. Um, and, yeah, I guess I don't – I haven't thought about it too much oh. because I think I – I feel, and I, I probably wouldn't have been able to write this book if I felt like oh, I, I was agree. still in that zone. I agree, and I also think, and it's the strength of the book is that because because you've written it so, um, it's beautifully written it, and as well as the fact that it's raw, it's um, it means so many women will resonate with it. They just will because they will recognise those feelings of despair. They will recognise. Mm not you know not being enough about you know striving to be a perfectionist about you know about feeling unhinged about not knowing what to do but then also those you know those beautiful moments of humanity of like when you're in the psych ward and just the people you met there and things like that like they're just really really beautiful moments and I think that's why it's such it's a, a book that as you said will you know has already like it, it's 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 um, allowed people or touched people in different ways, different parts of it. Yeah. It, you know, there's lots and lots of, um, of different points to it. So um, we are grateful that you've written it, Georgie, because it's a beautiful book. And Thank now, you. And we're especially lucky because you now work with us. So I yes. do hope you turn up next week. <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> um, but thanks so much for, um, for being part of the um, podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. There's so much to love about Georgie's book, but best of all, her story proves that not only is recovery a possibility, but so is living a big, beautiful, brave life, which Georgie does every day. Inspiring indeed. Thanks for listening today. Please rate and review as we value your feedback and don't forget to subscribe to Finding Fearless with Murray Claire so you don't miss an episode. We'll catch you next time.